Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All of it, nearly 600 episodes, is available for free. I invite you to support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you are so inclined, patreon.com slash other PPL pot. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person and just hey everybody, one how's it going? Right. Welcome to right. the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It is good to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles, and I have Saskia Vogel on the program today. Her debut novel, Many Years in the Making, is called Permission, and it is available now from Coach House Books. It is uh, an excellent debut that has been creating lots of excitement among the reading public. I was delighted to get to meet Saskia. I have known of her for many years. We actually went to the same graduate school and uh, she was a presence here in LA uh, for many years before moving abroad. She now calls uh, Berlin her home, but was out here on tour and made time to stop by. And it was just great to meet, uh, to meet her and to talk with her. And I'm excited to share that conversation in just a second. I do have some more mail. Uh, I got a letter from a listener named Becca who says, hey, uh, Hi, Brad. First, thanks for continuing to put out the uh, awesome episodes. It's important work. The show is filling a small part of the dumb void that formed in my life after I finished my MFA in 2012. I'm glad I found it. On the most recent episode, episode 580, you uh, mentioned not having the resources to hire someone to transcribe your interviews. What if, instead of finding one person to scribe hundreds of interviews, you put out a call and tried to find hundreds of people to transcribe one interview each? I'd be totally down to transcribe an episode as thanks for the work that you do. That's it. Take care. I look forward to future episodes. Signed, Becca. So I've been thinking about this actually since uh, last week's monologue. I was, you know, sort of tongue in cheek. I always feel a little weird for uh, doing the Patreon thing. I guess it's just the way it goes. Uh, like, like there's a part of me that feels weird about it. Uh, you know, full disclosure, we are doing just fine. I'm not 
like, you know, on the verge of being homeless or anything. We are uh, fortunate to be comfortable. And so there's a part of me that takes pride in being able to uh, just do this and just offer it up to the community. I like that. But, um, you know, I think, too, it's okay to uh, have a Patreon. I do a lot of work on this show and have for almost a decade. So if you listen a lot and you like the show and you have the means to, like, throw a couple of bucks in the hat, I think that's okay, right? And uh, to put an even finer point on it, like what I've been thinking, uh, simply because for now anyway, um, you know, everything is fine uh, financially for me, that if money comes in through the Patreon, it typically goes back into the show. And the plan uh, long term is to make sure that I have money set aside to keep the show live for years and years to come. That's actually something I think about. Like what happens if uh, I have to stop podcasting or if something happens to me, which it event, uh, eventually will, what will happen to this archive, which could be, I think, of use to uh, writerly people or readerly people. So I think that's a, a lot of what supporting the show is uh, about from my perspective. Uh, so I just want you guys to know that. I don't want you to, you know, to be unclear and as far as transcribing goes, you know, and I could be wrong. Maybe there's somebody out there that's more cost effective than this. But if you think about 600 or nearly 600 episodes averaging uh, over an hour a piece, that's a lot of hours. And I think trans, uh, transcriptionists, if that's the correct word, they tend to charge by the minute. Right. Or, uh, you know, whatever it is, like. It's so many cents per minute, and you add up all those minutes. It's quite a lot of money. It's a big, it, you know, it's a big uh, check to cut to have all of these episodes transcribed. So, uh, Becca, I think you have a, a lovely idea. I mean, it's it's super sweet of you to offer to transcribe a single episode. I may well take you up on that. I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I know that. There are hundreds of, of you out there and uh, thousands of you who listen to this show. I don't know if there's going to be 600 of you who will each volunteer to sit down for two or three hours and transcribe an episode. But if you want to do that, if you're at home and you're like, hey, I'll transcribe an episode, just email me, letters at otherppl.com, and uh, put transcription in the subject of the email so that I know what it's about. And we'll see where it goes. Maybe I'll just like, you know, I'll start the process and I'll mention it here in the monologue every so often. And maybe that's a way to get it done. Because I would love to be able to either use the, transcri uh, the, uh, the transcripts to create a book born of this podcast that, you know, can draw wisdom that has been gathered from my various guests over the years. Uh, and slash or make the transcripts available in full on the show's website. So you can go and reference them and search through if you need to, to find a particular passage or exchange that was meaningful. I know listeners appreciate that. I know I appreciate that as a listener. And uh, it's just one of these things that's labor intensive and cost intensive. And with everything that I have going on, I just have not had the time or uh, the resources to devote to it. And uh, it's something I would like to remedy. So thank you, Becca, for uh, writing to me. I appreciate hearing from you. I appreciate you listening. And we'll see what happens. Uh, so once again, if you guys are out there listening and you want to write to me for any reason, the email address is letters 
at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, Okay, so my guest is Saskia Vogel. Her debut novel, Permission, available now from Coach House Books. Here she is, folks. This is Saskia Vogel. It's about a sort of a failed actress who's in her 20s called Echo. And she comes home one day um, in a sort of hybrid of like the Palos Verdes Peninsula, San Pedro type situation. So coastal, cliffy, hilly, um, kind of remote, like a a bit of a distance from L.A., but still part of it, like still commuting distance for sure. Anyway, um, she comes home for a Memorial Day barbecue with her parents that they always have. And she goes on her usual walk with her dad um, down some sort of crumbling bluffs. And her kind of worst fear uh, happens. Like she is always worried that her dad might one day slip. And on this day, he does. Um, This throws her into a sort of grief spiral. She moves back in with her mom. She's got nothing really going on up in L.A. anyway. And back in this childhood home, all of her demons live. And she sinks into a kind of paralysis that she kind of tries to escape by sort of spying on her neighbors who turn out to be a dominatrix called Orly who's setting up shop in one of these sort of quite isolated suburban homes and um, she's moving into that house with her uh, houseboy a client who's also a long-standing friend called Piggy Piggy. exactly so this begs the question I mean I don't even know if you would know the answer to this but as I'm as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about it I'm like do dominatrixes set up often in suburban, like quiet suburban neighborhoods? Yes. <laughs> it always seems like something that would happen in a high rise. And like, I can see it in like, you know, downtown Manhattan near Wall Street or something like that. But like, does it happen? And I guess it happens in the burbs too. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some really like wonderful and longstanding dungeons that pop up around LA or have been here for a long time in downtown LA. Or there was one at that, um, I think in Crossroads of the World, there used to be a dungeon or maybe still is. I'm not sure. But uh, my, my book was based on a lot of research um, and a sort of friendship circle I had when I was living in L.A. in my 20s. And sure, dungeons, they're interesting, commercial dungeons and like commercial spaces or in warehouses and whatnot. But I was really taken by this sort of... Is it legal? Um, I think I wouldn't really need to update my information, but it's not, it's not, it, it is sort of... Like, I suppose you fall, I think you can maybe 
fall under the category of like life coach or something, but you have to be quite careful <laughs> in how you do your taxes. But it's been a while since I really, it's been a while since I've looked into the, to, to the legality of things, but I mean, you know, um, prostitution is not legal. So there's your, there's your very hard line. Right. Um, but life coaching, life coaching, totally legal therapeutic services. Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing when I say this from, cause I haven't been asked this question in a while, but to answer your question. Yeah. Um, the f- sort of friends of mine who had set up shop in their, in their homes outside of the bustling center of the city of Los Angeles, uh, really interested me also because la is kind of structured like that you know yeah everyone's kind of working and you never know what anyone's doing here i feel like yeah and like you know houses and with you know back houses or back gardens or you know um converted garages you know there's a lots of stuff that could happen i think LA, i could have a i could have a dungeon in here right now 100 <laughs> percent. got skylights <laughs> this could 100 percent be your next be your working dungeon there's your there's your next side that's gig. my side hustle coming Air, up airbnb experiences i mean yeah <laughs> by the way that's got to exist right on airbnb experiences i wonder i would bet sure oh i saw one on there was a oh it was an episode of sled ever i think from uh her TV show. I think they visited like an Airbnb dungeon at BDSM themed Airbnb. Is it like a box you can tick on the Airbnb website? Like this is what I'm looking for. Let's say yes, because (laughs) I would like to live in that world. (laughs) So how long did this book take you to write? Like you said, research. And and when you say research, like is the BDSM community, like you have friends who are in it, were you participating in it as experiential research or was it something that you were interested in independent of that? And so it all sort of like blended in. Yes. Yeah. I I went to high school in Sweden and um, I suppose I'm really bad at sneaking into places where I'm not supposed to be with fake IDs. But the place that I could sneak into, drink and dance to music that I enjoyed was a fetish club in in this uh, West Coast town of Gothenburg. Um, so I used to kind of go to this monthly fetish party with my fake ID um, in high school. And when I would come back to L.A., one of my best friends was also going to like similar clubs here. So he and I would sort of just go partying in those spaces. What does um, that look like? Like, what is a fetish party? I mean, like they had in Sweden, there was a dark room. And then I remember there was a little corner where sometimes somebody, you know, was like doing a scene or playing, which means can mean kind of anything. But the image that I always have is, I think, you know, a woman, a woman and a man, and there was a writing crop involved and she was like bound to some sort of rack. Um, I, I kind of was in it for like the Depeche Mode and the Madonna at that time. I wasn't particularly interested in having sneaky. I mean, I've never been really interested in having sex in dark rooms with strangers, but I really liked the environment. Is that what a dark room is? You just kind of go in and it's pitch black and yeah. everyone's just having sex. It's with... not a photography developing party. I was going to say, that's where my head was at. Like, yeah. So you're developing prints. Yep. And... Yep. Very, very sexy. Um, but like, not to be too... I don't want to go too into detail in the dark room, but it is uh, fascinating. Like you go into a dark room. Can you see anything? Okay. So I've been in, (laughs) thinking back to the specific dark room in this party in Gothenburg, I remember I I didn't know what a dark room was. And I had been dancing with somebody on the dance floor who was like, come, let's go sit down. And then I feel like, you know, there was kind of a narrow room. It was quite dark, but you could kind of see and I feel like there was like a long bench or maybe like a long L-shaped bench and like curtains surrounding it. So there was privacy. Um, and I think you could have just done whatever you wanted in there. I think I very quickly realized that I didn't want to do any of the things that you were supposed to do in there or in 
perhaps that that space allowed. And, and I, I don't know, I was just a teenager in high school. Yeah, you're like, I, I just want to dance. I just wanted to dance and be really gothy. I forget how much of a kind of goth I was in high school. I always think of myself as like a beach girl, but I'd look at these pictures and I'd like black hair and a velvet coat. I'm like, what? Who? Yeah. <laughs> so why were you raised in Sweden in high school? Um, my mother and father thought it would be great since my mother's a Swedish citizen, oh. um, to sort of have a do like a year abroad, Got uh, it. that turned into, um, me finishing high school there. Okay. So yeah. you, what age do you move there? Like 15, I think. To, and say the name of the town again, Gothenburg. And that's Western West coast. West coast. It's not unlike San Pedro where I grew up in LA. Um, so, uh, it's a Harbor, you know? So I feel like I'm, yeah. But colder. Oh yeah. No, no polar bears though, which was like number one question that was asked of me every time I came back to LA. Have you Is, seen a polar bear yet? Polar bears don't even exist in Sweden, do they? Maybe up like way North. Uh, I mean, I'm, I wonder if they know Norway. Sure. And then the, you know, and the Norway kind of wraps around the top of Sweden a bit. So who knows? Maybe polar bears might migrate. I've, I've been up there and inside the Arctic circle, right at that border where, Sweden meets um, Norway. It's really, it's really extraordinary. Hey, what is Lapland? Is that up there? Is that what? Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. That's that's the region that's up there. I have a friend um, who took his family up there for Christmas. He's a, I, you know, do you know Tyson Cornell? I dream of doing this. Yeah, yeah, I know Tyson. He took his family. <laughs> Literary oh, that's guy. So great. Yeah, he took his family up there. I was like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Oh, we're going out of the country for the holidays." I was like, "Where are you going?" He's like, "Lapland." Swedish Lapland, Finnish Lapland. I do, I think it might have been Finnish, but it was like. You know, it's like eternal darkness at that point. Yeah. 24 hours a day of darkness. Plus Aurora Borealis. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, and reindeer. Actually, yeah. So it's like reindeer and sleighs and igloos and constant darkness for Christmas. And if you're in <laughs> Finland, you get Santa because I think it's Rovaniemi that has both the like igloos with the skylights and the claim to Santa fame. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's kind of perfect. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I realized. I was like, wow, everyone's going to these like crowded hotels and these, t- you know, a lot of these uh, holiday vacations just seem awful because it's too much people. Mm. But like, I yes, don't think go to the Arctic. I don't think there's going to be a big crowd up <laughs> at the Arctic <laughs> and it's going to be festive and it's probably going to be like a, you know, exotic and, uh, like on, on brand for Christmas with it's, all the snow. It's really wonderful. It, it's, it didn't, it kind of occupies a really similar space in my head as, as, um, kind of the Mojave somehow. Cause I think technically, I mean, this is like just inside the Arctic Circle, but I think technically the Arctic is a kind of desert in terms of rainfall. Or there, there was, there was something that I read where it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it, I think my faulty information aside, I think just the sort of sense of space and the openness, like the particular part of Lapland that we went to, um, is apparently Europe's last wilderness. You know, and growing up in California, the thing that I found so crazy was if the water was running. You could just dip your cup in and drink it. And I feel like even living in Berlin, I've lived abroad for a long time now. You know, I went to, did my undergrad in, in the UK um, and then moved back to the UK eventually after I d- went to the MPD, MPW program at USC. You know, I still like have this like drought fear. You know, I take really short showers and I'm really cautious about water. But to just dip your cup into a running stream and drink without having to purify it was I, one of the best things that has ever happened to me in my life. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And the water was good. And so when you're like a 15-year-old kid 
And where in Southern California? Were you from Southern California? Yeah, I'm from. I'm born, I was born at Cedar Sinai. Okay, so you were. Right and what the, part of LA or Southern California did you grow up in? Uh, grew up in San Pedro and Palos Verdes. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah. so so you know the setting. So um, when your parents say to you, like, "Hey, you're going to move to a foreign country when you're 15," was this something you were like, "Yes," or were you uh, resistant? Oh gosh, I can only. I don't really remember that part of the decision, but I remember being in Sweden and being just desperate to come home constantly, but also. My mom took all these road trips with me and my sister. My dad stayed, um, and we she would take road trips with us like every weekend to the glass blowing area or to drive up north. And um, she had a lot of friends who were actors to see them in performances and things. Um, and I remember just really wanting to not do that because it was an anxious time to move. You know, I was taken out of like a very or the, the context I was leaving was like very small and very consistent. I'd gone to a private school, same 30 kids basically for eight years, you know, and I was dumped into just this like brand new school, brand new context, didn't really speak Swedish. I was going to say there's a language barrier yeah. too, unless your mom was speaking to you. No, I mean, technically my mother is um, from Austria. So she raised me speaking German and I would go to like German school in Torrance on Saturdays. Um, and Sweden, uh, I don't know, I guess when it came down to it they were like no no not austria we're going to go to sweden instead um for this year abroad but it, like, yeah. it's such a cool experience yeah yeah it definitely made me someone who loves like loves public transportation i think i'm the worst person for my angelino friends to visit because i'm like we're going to walk everywhere and there is really a stark cultural difference in how we occupy space yeah well i just uh i had some business meetings downtown this week and I rode my bike to the train station and took the train down. I, I hate driving. And <laughs> I've gotten to that point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes you have to, especially with kids. But mm. people make fun of me because they're like, you're riding your bike? Like, I met a friend to go to Dodger Stadium. And I looked at track. And it was like, the game was at 7. This was last summer. And I was like, you know what? I'm riding my bike. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to sit in my car and, like, inch along. Mm. <laughs> And uh, I probably got there in uh, relatively the same amount of time, and I got to park right outside the stadium. Then I got nice. exercise. You and uh, Ed Begley Jr., right? Yeah. He's also one of LA's <laughs> most committed bike riders. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm like an evangelist for bicycling, especially in this city where like the weather's always good. Yeah, it's relatively flat. Um, you know, I've made this argument before on the show, but like I, I like the idea of uh, evangelizing for these things because I think they're eventually going to be a necessity anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I think it's good to be out taking public transportation and biking as an advertisement for those activities. Like Los Angelinos need to see people on their bikes. They're just like to remind you that it's possible. Like you don't mm. have to be in your car. If you're dry, you're going somewhere that's a mile and a half away, you, right. you can get there in 15 minutes on your bike. Like yeah. if, if that, you know, well, so I was just in, um, well, actually my question is, have you done one of those Cicla Via rides? Oh, like, Ciclavia. 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 Okay. <laughs> I don't know how it's pronounced. Um, yes. Are they yeah. good? Yeah, it's great because it's like that's. I'm a fan of those because uh, for those of you listening, like I think one day a year, one or two days a year, they close down roads mm. um, for, to auto traffic and they let people just go out and bike around the city. And so, yeah, I think my pipe dream for Los Angeles is that eventually they just shut down like Wilshire. Yeah. Just give us give us like a, a west to east thoroughfare that's nothing but pedestrians and bikes and see how it goes. I but. have so many dreams for the public <laughs> transportation system in Los Angeles. Like I I'm, I constantly map. Um, I'm like, maybe this year it's going to be different getting between San Pedro and sort of, I don't know, here. 
or up in downtown or up to Hollywood. And I'm like, I know, I know it's possible. Like all we need is sort of a, a fast train from San Pedro, like they do in New York. They've got the faster ones and then with the local stops and then, and then all of that traffic on the 110, especially that hideous bit when you get to, oh no, I'm blanking on the street because I can only think of your street name. But yeah, when you start getting up by USC and the traffic starts getting crazy. Like an exposition. Like, yeah, exactly. You People can just listening are like, the... wow, this is like the most Los Angeles <laughs> conversation ever. But the larger point is that you were in Sweden and you spent time in the UK and you lived places where there was good public transportation and then you can't go back after that. Exactly. And to sort of maybe cycle it back to the, to the novel, I think it's made me think about space in Los Angeles a lot, like just to double down on the traffic stuff, but relate it to the book. So maybe people will be interested in hearing us talk about traffic. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was really difficult for me when I was first conceiving of where the dominatrix would live, I was imagining her living where in another part of town where I knew a friend had set up shop in her home. And, um, but I couldn't for the life of me thinking about a, non-Angelino reader figure out how to justify the kind of driving that Echo would have to do in order to see Orly. So I think it is kind of in a fantasy space, perhaps, that a dominatrix would set up shop in, you know, an area where real estate is quite so expensive as kind of the South Bay. But the sort of idea of setting up in a in one of these places where there are a lot of single family homes and a lot of quiet, you don't really engage with your neighbors is I mean, there's the sort of seed of the truth, but also shrinking down the narrative to a cul-de-sac. Um, yeah, that took a long time. I mean, talking about a, the process of writing, because I was writing all these driving scenes, and you know, I just, I just didn't think any reader. How many would podcasts buy it. can this character listen to? It's, it's getting tired. Uh, it's true. So how, how many long... eggs can she crack on her steering wheel? How much can I steal from Joan Didion? <laughs> how long did it uh, take you to write this book? Like 15 years. I mean, all in. Um, I, so I had done my undergraduate work in English and film in, in the UK. and uh, At what at, school? Where were you? It's called Brunel University. They're known for sort of engineering and I think Olympic athletes, but they had a really cool like post-colonial lit program and a really interesting set of teachers. There was there were some really great seminars on like, um, you know, body genres and horror. And I just really like their approach to textual criticism cool um so yeah but then i i really wanted to go to the mp master of Pro master of professional writing program at usc and wanted to come back to la because i kind of thought when is it going to be better to live in la than when i'm like 21 now at least and can also get my driver's license like i was imagining coming home to a completely different city and my friend who um, we shared the same sort of predilection for parties. And there were a bunch of little, just sort of like dancing club nights with also spaces to play um, in the back. Of most, you know, you could go there just to dance. Or you could go there also to maybe do some more things. Dark rooms. Yeah. Like, uh, like club six, six, what was it called? Seven, nine, six, nine, or like perversion that was down sort of by Hollywood and Highland. Wait, was seven, nine, six, nine on Santa Monica. Yeah, exactly. I used to live right over, but I didn't know what it was. I always saw a line. Yeah, it was fun. That's what it was. <laughs> no wonder I didn't go. <laughs> it was really, really good. It was a really good space. Um, but so that was kind of our party circuit. And then when I came back, he had moved into, um, like a suburban home with a group of people who were really intimately involved in that scene, sort of um, providing talent for parties sometimes. And by talent, I mean like, you know, the dancers or Cirque du Soleil type performers or whatever. Um, and 
some people, you know, making their lives and careers within the sort of BDSM and fetish community and other people just, you know, living the full expression of their themselves um, inside that community. And I just, I was 23 and I was just like, okay, nobody told me that non-heteronormative loving was possible in this kind of in a way that sometimes I wonder if I've idealized it. But at the time I was like, this is so drama free and beautiful. And I didn't know you were allowed to have these kinds of conversations about what you liked or what kind of relationship you wanted to be in. And so, and I was at USC at the time and I was like, ah, screw fiction. I don't want to write fiction. I'm going to, I'm going to be gay to lease and write thy neighbor's wife for the, what was it then? The 20th century, (laughs) for the latter half of the 20th century. I just didn't know how to handle nonfiction, I think, but I tried. And so, like books yeah. have to find their form, you know, and writers have to find, you know, what they're, what they're best suited to. And sometimes it's a process of trial and error. Mm. You yeah. know, I wrote some, there was a lot of, lot of error. Yeah. That's the way it goes. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things about your book, and I think you're speaking to this is that it's, it's not dealing in this sub, uh, dealing with this subject matter in the way that like at first blush, a lot of people might expect um, you know, there's the sexual element and like, um, like more prurient details or whatever, but there's all, it's really about the human relationships that mm-hmm. happen inside of all this. And it's, I, I can't imagine how you would be able to write it with such, um, depth and specificity without having been witness to it. So it, it makes it make more sense now, oh, thanks. you know, as somebody who's coming from the outside looking in, mm-hmm. you know, like when I think of dom- dominatrix, uh, BDSM stuff, you know, there's like the common perception of like the wall street banker who is into it Mm. and uh, like trying to parse that psychological profile, you know, like the really rich power bro Mm. who like likes to get peed on. Yeah. Yeah. Which Uh, you get a lot in like the girlfriend experience television show. Yeah. For example. Um, there's a lot of that. There is some of that, but there's a lot more too. Mm. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not just a, it's not a narrow channel. And I suppose, you know, you have, I have this uh, storyline of sort of Echo grieving her father and kind of coming to terms with the fact that the family she had was kind of maybe not enough for her or lacking in a lot of ways. And she kind of finds another family in this, um, and with her neighbors across the street in a different form on different terms. Um, But, you know, there is that kind of like intimacy there that was the most interesting to me because I suppose you know, the world that I saw back in the early 2000s was, you know, very much about community and care. And I think um, one of the things that, what's been so fun about being on tour is hearing all these people talk about your book with you in ways that you hadn't thought about the book yourself. So somebody, um, I think it was Jana Demkiewicz in, in Minneapolis, she was saying, this book really seems to be a lot about how we aren't really taught how to deal and deal with pain and process it. And there's also quite a lot of that in the novel. Like, yes, you know, it's a novel with that happens to have BDSM in it, but it, you know, in terms of thinking about how we learn to carry pain, we learn to process pain. Like I really loved that link. It it made it, I don't know, that rang really true for me. Well, yeah, what you just said rings true to me, like not just with regard to processing pain with, but with so many vital aspects of life. I feel like we are undertrained. <laughs> sure. You know, it's not part of our formal education in the way that it should be. Things like conflict resolution, mm-hmm. things like 
what does uh, love mean? What does it mean to love another human being, like for real, mm-hmm. uh, or with depth and um, perspective? You know, and I never got. I mean, it was modeled for me. Thank, thank goodness. Um, like my parents were great, but you know, there wasn't like big discussion about it in school in the way that like you would think maybe there'd be something around that or how to love. Yeah. Love one one <laughs> like love one one how to be a human being. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that's what we turn to religion for sometimes, but that can, that's a good point. that can be lacking or if you're not raised with it, then it is, it's definitely lacking. But, um, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that, um, you know, a, a curious person, um, whether they're in the real world or it's a character like Echo, like they're mm-hmm. going to go looking for it at some point. Yeah. And the other thing that comes to mind is age, because you talk about um, a character going looking for a family situation or trying to find things that were maybe lacking at home in a set of friends. Mm. And I think particularly at that age, when you're in your early 20s, mid 20s, and friendships are um, such a big part of your life. Mm. And can be so intense. I mean, they can be intense too as an adolescent, but I just recall, you know, being that age and like social life is, uh, it's, it's happening a lot more than at this stage of life Sure. where the friendships are, they can still be great, but it's not quite as uh, frenetic and intense. I think part of that is also for like mundane reasons, like, um, you know, you're still getting used to figuring out how to pay your bills, you know, or trusting in the process that you are going to be able to pay your bills. And I think, I don't know, then, then community, I think can become especially important when you're even just to sort of be like, Oh my God, how do you, you know, like how, how are we supposed to handle life? Well, let's be kind of confused together. It's nice to feel that you're part of something. Yeah. Like you're in the bunker with somebody like we're confused. Yeah. (laughs) And there's also that hunger for intensity of experience, Mm. like especially for somebody who has an artistic, uh, lean to them. Uh, you know, you're in your early twenties or you're a teenager in, uh, Western Sweden and you're, you know, using a fake ID or whatever to get your way into a fetish party. Like that's exciting, <laughs> you know, For te- I mean, as a teenager, you're like, wow, like it must've been mind blowing. Oh gosh. I, I was really depressed as a teen. I think struggling with a lot of things when I, when I think back, I'm like, oh, my life was pretty cool. But I think in the moment, when I think back about the, the moments, I, I think I was, I was like very in the throes of my own drama and, and uh, what were you depressed about? Like, was it just like teen angst or was it like specific issue stuff? Teen angst. Um, I don't know. I, I think I've always struggled with a lot of like darkness. Um, I mean, even, and, and I think, and this comes across in the novel, I suppose, cause the, the sort of, intense fixation on, on those cliffs and, and all the people who've thrown themselves off them. Is that a big thing down there? Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, there were, there was like, um, I mentioned them in the novel briefly, or I mean, reference something like this. There was a, like a pair of high schoolers who like made a suicide pact. Um, almost every time I go to San Pedro, they're like, there's at least one new story about somebody slipping or what happened. Like, I think when I was finishing writing the book, I came and hid away in my dad's house for three weeks to finish it. And in that time, it, there was like, um, you know, somebody came in to have a date in Point Furman and they kind of found their way down a little bit and were sitting on a ledge and like just slipped off, you know, Damn. terrible Tinder date 
Well, you know? and what's his name? Uh, Tony Scott, the film director, jumped off that bridge in San Pedro. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So I know that there's that bridge. That was the only time I ever heard of anything happening down there, but I didn't know yeah. this about those cliffs. I mean, it's it's just, it's present. It's present enough to, like, grow up with it. You know, there was, there was this terrible case of um, somebody who lived in uh, one of the housing or apartment complexes near where we lived. I think that might be misremembering this, but broad strokes, I think the dad could no longer pay child support. So instead of, well, his solution was to um, throw his daughter off the cliff. Oh something like that. Yeah. Like it's, you know, even if you just grow up with like one or two of these stories, it's intense, but something really kind of really connected to me somehow. And well, and it's also that like, you know, because we live in this land of eternal sun and, you know, like there's a, an idealization of Southern California that is, um, you know, perpetuated in the culture. Mm. And then you live here and you're like a, a goth teen, <laughs> you know, like there is, and there is a macabre, uh, element to Los Angeles and yeah. Southern California, despite like the kind of technicolor, uh, veneer. And so I can see how it fits and I can see how somebody who's kind of a depressive, angsty goth teen, um, would, uh, you know, that would make quite an impression, these cliffs and people falling and yeah, I don't know. It seems like something that would be sticky. It was really sticky. And I guess to answer your question a little bit better, one of the things that um, I thought about a lot and I think has had a really big influence in my writing um, in terms of representing Los Angeles um, is, you know, my mother grew up in post-war Vienna, you know, and suddenly she was in suburbia because she fell in love with my dad and they moved there all of a sudden. And I think a lot about her. How did they meet? A business dinner in Holland. It apparently they fell in love, just like that. Yeah, wow. yeah, and um, yeah. So I, I just think a lot about like what would it have been like if you know my dad had moved to Brentwood instead of Palos Verdes, where my mom, where like we might have had more of a some semblance of like a walking sort of European scaled life, or at least an opportunity for some local living as opposed to being in this, you know, house. Yeah. You know, and sometimes that sense of like, I mean, I've, I, I felt often that there was something that I wanted to get at. And, you know, I think part of that was, I think I always knew I wanted to do something that was very different to what my parents were doing, which, you know, involved shipping and, you know, international trade and stuff. And so your dad was shipping fruits and vegetables. Exactly. Or? Okay. Yeah. How do you get into that? Like I'm going to ship for, I don't even, how does somebody know how to do that? Oh, I'm going to plug my favorite essay just because I love it so much. May I, that yeah. I wrote, that's really horrible. It's called the mango King. I, I just wanted to know more exactly about my dad and that question, how he got into the mango business, which is one of his sort of, um, f fruits that he's sort of very specialized. So if I'm in. eating these dried mangoes from Trader Joe's, is that your dad? No. Oh, Fresh mangoes. Fresh. Yeah. He doesn't deal on the dried. No. Okay. Yeah, it's just fresh stuff. Is dried fruit good for you? Is it just sugar? Am I killing myself thinking I'm getting <sighs> like vitamins? <laughs> you know, Brad, everything in moderation. <laughs> I can't, I can't I just can't, have one. I can't think about all the food rules that we're supposed to abide by. It's, it's like, overwhelming. Just, yeah. It's overwhelming. It's like, really intense. I went out to dinner last night at Dantana's, and, uh, which I love. I love that place. It's so good. Yeah. And I had pasta, and I was like... But like the, my buddy who I was with was like... I could tell he was like ordering around the carbohydrates. Yeah. You know, one of those things. And I was like, should I be doing that? And I was like, I like pasta. And I'm just going to eat some pasta. So this is also why Echo has such a weird relationship to food in the novel. <laughs> <laughs> 
My sister was the first person who introduced like a gluten-free lifestyle to me. I had this Italian boyfriend at university in London and we'd go to his family's house um, every Sunday and they'd make the same thing, like a beautiful pasta dish and some other food. And um, I came back from a summer in California where my sister was like, okay, we don't eat bread now, like no carbs. And I remember looking at my boyfriend's mom and being like, oh no, just, just some of the sauce and some meat. And she just looked at me and she was like, no. <laughs> Good and, for her. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm really grateful for her. I mean, for, yeah, it gets, it gets like, I think that, you know, it's like, it's, I think it's easy to be of two minds on this stuff. I do think we need to be conscious of what we eat. And like what the impact is on our health and also on like the health of the planet. Like that's good. Of course. Yeah. But like where's the line and where is the good information too? I feel like everybody, every time I think I've got it, somebody else comes out and is like, no, that's not it. Mm. So it's just, you get, you get discombobulated. I mean, I feel like the closest thing is, um, the thing that makes the most sense to me is like eat as many whole foods as possible yeah. because of course, if you're relying on a lot of prepared foods, what, what's in them. Right. I mean, of course, we know what's in them, but also I don't know how my body actually processes high fructose corn syrup, so maybe I don't want to have it. You yeah, know? I don't want that in me. Yeah. And like, and also like, just processed foods, just sure. like these garbage <laughs> creations. <laughs> um, so okay, so let's get to, let's get back. I want to try to tra- I want to trace this arc. So goth teen, um, depressive, living in um, South Bay, and and I think it might be useful if we can paint this properly, uh, for people listening who might not have orientation in Southern California, you basically have, if you can picture this, like, so for those of you listening at home, imagine you're like up above in like a helicopter or you're somehow mounted to a drone and you're looking down at the Southern California coast. Uh, you have Los Angeles up at the top, let's say up in, you know, to the North there's Los Angeles. And then to the South, a ways you have like orange County which is like where Anaheim is and Disneyland and Laguna beach. And like a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of like uh, mega churches, but then in between Los Angeles and orange County, there is the South Bay, which is Palos Verdes, Manhattan beach. Right. Is that all? Yeah, is that all South I Bay? Think so. Yeah. But like Palos Verdes is like this peninsula peninsula that juts out into the Pacific yeah, with a fault line running across the edge. That, okay. Like if you, there's like, I, I like to think about that a lot because there's a fault line that basically would just like drop the peninsula into the ocean. Like all those uh, apocalyptic Los Angeles models that you get sometimes, yeah. um, especially after that, uh, it was it a Catherine Schultz article in the New Yorker. The one about Seattle? The one, yeah, the, the earthquake that's going like to destroy all of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I look at that fault line in Palos Verdes and I'm just like, you could just snap off. Another thing that young <laughs> gothy Saskia glowed on to. <laughs> yeah, Mike Davis really did a number on me with City of Courts. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's good to know. And so just, I think like the point that I'm trying to make like geographically is that because of the... Um, the peninsula, you know, the, the peninsula factor where it's kind of jutting out. And then because it's sort of tucked away from major freeways. Oh yeah. So there's an insulated quality, despite like the incredible population of Southern California, there's 10 million people or whatever. Mm. Uh, I always feel like when I go to the South Bay, I'm like, wow, it's like things slow down. It feels like it's, it's got like this kind of like bubble feel. It's, it's kind of a resort. I mean, I'm remembering I was maybe 11 or 10, I guess, around the uh, Rodney King riots. And I remember one of the, I don't know who was talking about this, but I just remember there being kind of an awareness that there are only sort of three or four roads that lead, like if you 
you could quite strategically block off the um, Palos Verdes Peninsula because there are only so and so many roads that lead in. So it is it is also just intensely isolated because it's like this road and that road and that's about it. Right. Um, and then I know that there are a lot of wonderful people there who I love very much, but the ones who left an impression on me, I suppose, were the ones who had ideas about living in a city that were very different to mine. Um, and there's, I remember there was a real strain with some of the families that I was, I mean, so, I mean, this is a child's perspective listening to adults. So I'm going to take that with a grain of salt, but I walked away with a real sense of like, we've found this perfect bubble, you know, rocky coastlines, close to beach cities. I don't think there's one bar in Palos Verdes, you know, so if you want, it's all, it's restaurants and things. There's a Trump golf course. There's a Trump golf course. (laughs) As far as I understand, people are not happy with that at all in general, also because he wasn't, well, you know, he was Trump when he made it also then, um, being the businessman that he is. Um, Yeah. There was a marine land, which was like a sea world that was, uh, speaking of goth Saskia, like all she did was walk along the cliffs and look at the weirdly large amounts of discarded pornographic magazines and movies on the sort of trespassing pathway that really, yeah. And then I'd, I'd go up to Marine land, which was basically sea world, but drained because they took away all the animals and then it was just there empty for ages. And that's kind of like, that was my landscape. So there's just, and thinking about like, however am I going to find my way in the world to be sitting at the edge of this peninsula and kind of looking out at the ocean just that way and then having hills kind of blocked up against you. Of course, it's gorgeous. And of course, it's all the privilege and wonderful to raise a family there. But I often felt just so far away from the world, knowing also about like the world that my mother grew up in as a child in in, in Vienna, also in a suburb, but you know, her suburb comes with trams that take you into the center of the city and um, just a very different sense of how you're meant to inhabit space. So this idea that like people would move to Palos Verdes in order to kind of block themselves off from like ugh, icky Los Angeles. Right. Um, I just, I, that notion never left me. And I, I, I thought, no, I mean, we need in this world, we need to think about each other and care about each other. We can't just block ourselves off from each other and pretend icky Los Angeles doesn't exist with all of its ills and problems, you know? Well, that's, yeah. I mean, I wrestle with that because I'm raising children in the middle of this crazy city. Yeah. And, I was, I'm a kid from the Midwest who was raised in suburbs that were pretty, uh, antiseptic. So there's positives. I mean, there's positives to like having that more innocent kind of childhood insulated. I will say that growing up in the Midwest, like these days when I meet people who are from the Midwest, I'm always like, wow, that person is extra nice. I'm like, where are you from? And they're like, Ohio (laughs) (laughs) or like Minnesota or whatever it is. Like I do, it's, it's a real thing. Um, there's like a, there's a friendliness and a lack of guile, lack of edge, or like some kind of open-heartedness that I enjoy. Um, not to paint it with too idealistic of a brush. I mean, it's a place like any other. It has its problems. But sure. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is like wrestling with like, am I making the right choice? Is it good? Like there's a part of me that sort of noticed too when I would meet people who had been raised in big cities that they had kind of like an extra gear. Hmm or a sense of worldliness or intelligence about them that I found myself um, like attracted to and admiring of because I was like, Oh wow. They just seen so much more than I had Mm. just by virtue of being raised in Manhattan and, you know, riding the trains and 
Sometimes, although you can get your sort of also provincial locals in big cities that like know their neighborhood and that's kind of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you, I think maybe that has more to do with personality sometimes. Well, so. no, I have, I mean, I have my buddy who I'm thinking of, uh, I went to Boulder for undergrad, but he was raised in Manhattan and he, uh, like upper West side, Riverside drive area. And, uh, he would tell me cause he would have friends come out to visit in Boulder and they'd be fucking terrified because there, there's these people who they never leave Manhattan unless they're going to Florida. <laughs> it was like, go to see, go to see grandma in Florida, go back to Manhattan, but like you never leave the Island. Mm-hmm. And so to be out in Colorado and I think they took them camping or something, mm-hmm. but like the stars and the quiet and the sense of isolation and no people was terrifying. Well, it is terrifying. I mean, when we got, we did like a 200 kilometer hike through, through the, through Lapland, um, through this wilderness. And I remember coming back to Berlin and thinking, oh gosh, I really need to remember that water doesn't just come out of pipes and you might actually have to plan to get a meal or plan how you're going to in any way, like find food this evening kind of thing. And so wait, what 200 kilometer hike? We like hiking. Who, you and your husband? Me and my husband and also two of our friends, um, who I went to university with or so, i went to university with the guy and then his his wife recently you did this like a couple a few years ago four years ago maybe. so what is that i'm, I'm trying to like, how many miles is two or three hundred kilometers maybe like 115 miles okay so it's like a five-day run or yeah, more not, more yeah yeah we didn't it wasn't i think it was a two-week trip in total but um you know there was like buffer time and, but you brought your own food uh what's really nice is that the swedish um the Swedish Tourist Association, the STF, they um, they maintain they, like it's a trail that's maintained by them, and so there are these cabins. Uh-huh. And kind of every other cabin, you can um, stock up on stuff. I mean, it's quite expensive to stock up there, but um, if you're trekking for a while, because the tra- trail runs for much much longer, I want to say maybe four or eight hundred kilometers. Um, you know, it's nice to know that you don't have to bring everything with you, so you can do kind of a light lightweight. Um, and it's like light light out almost all the time yeah oh. and even though i knew this all of us were like oh man we thought we were gonna see stars <laughs> you know in june <laughs> maybe a few but it'd be like Zero. when you're probably sleeping no no just bright it's just it's just light it's 24 hours yeah. Of sun. yeah yeah oh my god it's amazing the the sun like skirts the sky there are these mountain the mountains on the norwegian side of this big lake near where we started our trip you know the sun just kind of arcs slowly down skims the top of the mountains and goes right back up again like it's 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 incredible and that wilderness has got to be pristine or yeah. like as close to pristine as yeah yeah it's wonderful damn rain lots of reindeer oh my god i love reindeer yeah yeah there's nothing there's nothing creepy about a reindeer right they're not going to mess with you <laughs> no there's nothing creepy about a reindeer i don't think <laughs> they're also really tasty are they uh-huh yeah you guys weren't hunting. No, no. Okay. It's just, a, you know, you get reindeer. We had like reindeer. We had a like award-winning pizza in Kiruna that was um, the sort of dried reindeer just on a pizza. It was, it was delicious. Well, I think I've heard of reindeer jerky. Oh, I'm sure. It's a great, like, I, I, I bet you it, it's probably not unlike like a buffalo jerky or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian, but I, Oh, know. sorry. That's okay. Didn't mean to bring meat onto your <laughs> podcast. Let's go ahead and slaughter Rudolph if that's your deal. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So you go to college in England, you come to the United States. We, you know, you referenced this earlier, but I don't know if people listening got it. Like we went to the same graduate school, Mm -hmm. the now defunct MPW at USC. 
MPWRIP. Yeah, yeah. MPWRIP. Uh, not without its problems, but also not without its positives. Yeah. I made a lot of good friends there and, and uh, learned a lot and had time to write my book. Um, so you were working on this book, but thought it was going to be nonfiction. Yeah, I thought I was going to do like an oral history, essentially, of that friendship circle. I just didn't know. Like, I, I can see how I could do it now, but I, at that I just didn't. I just didn't. I don't think I knew what an essay was outside like, of an academic context, you know? Yeah. Well, and just, you know, like, again, like the certain subject matter, you got to find your way in mm. a way that's like best suited to your taste and talent. Yeah. And I think what, what resonates with you, I, I think from what I'm hearing and, and with people about the book is I suppose I've had enough time with the material for, from like to have like absolutely hated it for a while and, you know, disavowed it and brought it back into my life and, um, kind of what I was writing at. Uh, the University of Southern California was sort of, um, I was just in love with my subject matter and no one could do anything wrong. And um, that might, that might, that might have been true, but also uh, it's just not interesting. What were you workshopping? Like oral history stuff? Yeah. People's stories. So I, I interviewed all my friends and then was trying to put it in a wider context. See, but that's like you basically, even though you might not have thought of it this way explicitly, you were doing research. Yeah. You know, so it's all, it's all for the good. It all wound up in this book one way or the other. It's true. I mean, a lot of it didn't, but like what, what filtered, what like the molecules that gravitated towards each other to create like piggy and echo and the environment. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, it's all from that book, uh, from that research. Okay. So yeah, yeah I mean, you're using friends experiences and like then combining them and yeah. And then like just stuff I've, cause I, I used to also, um, you know, I've worked with sort of erotic themes for basically my, my entire adult life. Um, so, you know, just hearing stuff and knowing other people. And I, I was always wondering, mm, I mean, truth is a difficult word, but I wanted to write like a, a story that felt true, you know, that wasn't sensationalizing that kind of, I don't know, looked at that community and people living life in that way, um, in a way that I hadn't found yet. I mean, Mary Gateskill, I suppose also, you know, with secretary and things like Melissa Phoebos, like I think we write in similar in a similar kind of space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, but it's like, you know, it's a terrain that, uh, a lot of people, it's, it's a, it's a uh, a lifestyle that a lot of people are involved in. Mm. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a niche, but it's not like super tiny. Like there's a lot of people out there yeah. and you think about Southern California, you know, what I find interesting, like if we can call it, um, a deviant sexual lifestyle for lack of a better way of putting it, just something that deviates from the norm, Sure. you know, uh, you think about these insulated communities in the South Bay or in Orange County, there's a lot of that stuff going on in like mega church land. Sure. Um, you know, cause I've read, you know, I've read articles where they're referencing studies of like per capita. Um, like I want to say orange County has the highest per capita, uh, swinger population in the country. That makes so much sense. Which makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. But also anytime you look at any like porn, like porn, his porn search history and stuff, it's always kind of most exciting to see what people are looking about looking at in the most conservative places. Cause it's usually quite wild. Wait, how do you do that? I, 
I don't know. I find articles on the internet that tell me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know if there was like a website I can find <laughs> oh, out. No. I mean, I think Pornhub, <laughs> Pornhub does like, has done like at least one like annual roundup of like what people are looking at and stuff. And it's fascinating, but, um, I don't know. It was some article I was reading about, um, you know, search history and data. That's what it yeah. makes me think of. Big data is really exciting. Big data. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's even in Pornhub is into big data. Yeah. They've got a lot of opportunity to collect a lot of stuff. So what about working in this vein as a writer and having this interest, um, as a person, like, like, what's it like to, to write about that and to be involved with it and then, you know, have like your family read, is there any weirdness around that? You know, I think the only way that I can answer this question is to just be completely frank. Like I had a, I think I had a really tricky relationship with my dad. Like I think we forgot how to speak to each other through my entire teens and, and kind of moving back to LA in my twenties. Um, part of that was like, okay, I've lived away from my dad now for three years. And I kind of thought if I, if I just keep doing my life, I feel like I'm just never going to see my dad again because we just do not connect anymore. So I, I moved back, um, here and it, it kind of took this attitude where I was like, oh, my parents are going to think stuff about me and they're going to like make up stuff about me or have ideas about me that I don't control. And, um, I might as well just be completely frank about what it is that I'm up to. So I, I started quite early on just being like, yes, I'm going to this club. I'm going to go do this thing. Yes. You know, and then I worked at, um, adult video news for a while who do, who do the big, like Oscars of porn in Vegas every year. Oh, the ABN awards. Yeah. So I was a, an editor at their magazine for a while, um, at two of their magazines and, which you know, magazines? Uh, at Old Video News. I did like a, I was a maternity cover. My biggest dream coming out of USC was to be the managing editor at a magazine. It's like all I wanted. Um, and so I had that opportunity there after trying really hard to find a similar job elsewhere. They offered me training, good pay. I think they basically hired me because I wasn't offended by anything I said in the interview, which I think is true. And, um, you know, I learned some hard magazine skills solid magazine skills. I mean, um, yeah. And then I worked at adult novelty business, which was the sort of sex toy magazine. It's a, Oh, it's like a trade magazine. Yeah. 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 So it was a lot of like, AVN is a lot of like, um, well, it's like publishers weekly, but for, but for the sex film business right, and right, sex right. toy industry. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, like when you talk about like, cause there's always this tension with people who are writing about like, what are you sharing? What if you're writing about your personal life or writing about family members and like, yeah. how are they going to respond? But I read what, what resonates with me is that like from a young age, um, you had this tension with your father, but you also, you seem like a fairly, um, assertive person. Like you, you were kind of going to do what you wanted to do anyway. You had the courage at least to tell your parents, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? At some point, because I, I was sort of the same way in a different, you know, maybe a, like from a different uh, angle, but I had kind of the same attitude where I was like, I'm going to just tell you who I am. Mm. And I, I don't know, I wasn't going to be content to hide myself from uh, my parents. You know, the fact that like, I wasn't going to be Catholic or I mm. wasn't, you know, interested in business or, you know what I'm saying? Like these things that um, as a young person, you know, uh, could have created a problem and I mean, my parents, both my mom and my dad and, and um, my stepmother, I think they are, well, they're incredibly open and very perceptive people. So I think they absolutely saw me much more clearly at some points. 
Um, then I see myself like I come to LA and I have all my like, oh, is it still my home? Can I be here? Nobody thinks I'm from here. Everybody says I have an accent. And I just sometimes want to come home and just be like, hey, welcome to California, Saskia, who's from here. Yeah. Um, and my dad and I, we were like in, um, he farms outside of LA and, and we like were driving around. He farms his mangoes? Uh, no, he, he, he farms um, limes and guava, organic farm and... Um, who does he sell these fruits and vegetables to? Like just through his like wholesale and distribution business. Um, to, he, but to grocery stores and yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So his whole thing is like he does a lot of like Hawaiian. He has beautiful Hawaiian guava that's organic and locally grown. I think I think he was telling me it was like one of five farms in the continental United States. So you get the good Hawaiian guava without the the big transportation. Yeah. Um, because that's a thing that's on everyone's mind, of course. I'm fascinated with your dad. My dad's the coolest. <laughs> you know, he just like suddenly learned to become a farmer like 20 years ago, you know, uh -huh. and um, and it's been really interesting watching him grow that business. But yeah, no, we were just driving around and I was like, God, I feel so at home. And he's like, you're from here. I'm like, <laughs> okay. I know it sounds really banal but or, or mundane, but sometimes it's really easy to forget, you know, like, like this tour, for example, like I've essentially not been at home for two months mm -hmm. and I don't really have an everyday. I'm not entirely sure what day it is. And everywhere I go, I'm just like, okay, this is my home now. Like if you told me I had to live in, in this space, space where we're recording for the next four days, I'd be like, great. Yeah. But you moved, <laughs> you know, like you not only, you moved as a kid, but not only did you move as a kid, but you moved country and then you moved country again to go to college and then you came back and now you're living in Berlin. So I think, cause I have this sense of like not really having a solid place that I'm from. Cause I moved as a mm -hmm. kid. I have places that I've lived, but I don't have a place that I'm from. Um, I, like if people ask me, I say Milwaukee just cause that's where I was born. Yeah. Um, but I've lived in Los Angeles twice as long as I've ever lived anywhere. Mm. So now is this the place that I'm from? That's <laughs> funny. It's such a weird question. Um, but one of the things also thinking about like why the landscape was so important in the book, cause it's, I really wanted to write like the landscape of LA in a way that, LA sits with me always in terms of space. I mean, we've already covered driving, but also the hills and the, like the crazy diversity of landscape that's here. You know, the fact that like you've got, you know, rescue divers, but also helicopter police guys and like a Harbor <laughs> patrol and inner Baywatch. city cops. And, yeah. Baywatch. Like it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's really remarkable, you know? And when on this trip, my husband and I decided to take the train. So we took the train from, we flew from Toronto to Minneapolis, um, where I have some family. And then we took the train to Seattle. And I, did you ever play that game, um, uh, Oregon Trail? No. Oh my God. You missed out. You yeah. missed out on the best part I of being a child a in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically it was just a simulation of, um, traveling West on the Oregon Trail. And so, you know, we're going through North Dakota, we go through Montana, all these plains and, um, you know, we're slowly traveling west, and we arrive in the Pacific Northwest. You you go through this, like, mountainous national park, which is incredible. And then we kind of started rolling into Seattle, and I don't know. I One, I was like, gosh, what must it have felt like to roll into this landscape um, once upon a time, you know, in your covered wagon? Yeah. But two, just on a really personal level, like... I had been feeling at home in every place I had been. Like I'd lived in London for ages. I spent two weeks in London around the launch of my book. So it was also London Book Fair and stuff, um, which is important for my work as a translator to like go run around and remind people that I exist. 
so that always good. Yeah. So that hopefully they'll <laughs> give me work again. Um, but you know, and I feel so at home generally everywhere and suddenly we were in Seattle and everything was a bit more familiar. You know, the Hills were, it was like a really wet kind of echo park in a way, the way the Hills are and, and the sort of 1920s bungalows and things. And I felt such a profound sense of having come home. And then as we took the train from Seattle to San Francisco, San Francisco to LA, it was it was like this beautiful, prolonged sense of homecoming. I was going to say it's like slow motion reentry, you know. Yeah, but it was so connected to the landscape. So I think I think this question of home, maybe I can finally answer it in terms of like where you feel connected to the land. Like I I just I feel so at ease, like scrabbling around that those like weird crumbly cliffs and just be careful. Yeah, there's a fault line there. You know, <laughs> be an earthquake at any moment. I'll go pitching into the ocean. <laughs> That's uh, what you grow up with when you grow up in LA. I know. The fact that your city is going to not exist anymore. I know. You know? Um, <laughs> so how many times did you almost abandon this book? I don't think ever. I think I had other interests sometimes. Like, you know, I really wanted to work in magazines and I loved it. And I was really excited about working with pornography because... I don't know, I think sort of echoes of the 80s anti-pornography movement and sort of general attitudes about representations of sex, I have no idea why, have always been sort of of interest to me. So Were you raised with religion? No, I have like two ex-Catholic parents. Okay. Um, but no, not well, it's really. It's in your DNA then at least, because I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic. Yeah. It's, even though I don't practice, like it, it echoes. I think it absolutely echoes, you know. And even though I've, I've like studiously avoided reading religious texts because for some reason I... I no longer think I should not read. I think I should read the Bible eventually. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like, no, I've kept myself away from it. But then I look at what I write and I'm just like, oh. I mean, I went to, what what was I? like CCD? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did all the okay. studying up until a certain point. Did you get confirmed? No, I don't okay. think so. But CCD, that's enough to ruin a person. <laughs> yeah. I just really, weirdly, the thing that I remember most about CCD is how we had to like mime washing Jesus's feet. Uh -huh. Which, I mean, thinking about the book and Piggy, I was like, is it a coincidence that I have a foot fetishist in my, in my novel? <laughs> Look, I have a friend who's a sex therapist. I was asking her because like, she would be telling me, like, she wouldn't name names because, you know, she can't do that. But I was just like, what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah. She'd be like, people have some strange fetishes. Like, I'm trying to work with people who like to, like, have sex with shoes. Yeah. Or, like, people, you know, like, it's just things I would never even imagine. But I'm always... Uh, I've said this before in the show. I'm like, I think I'm maybe like too boring sexually when I read about people or, you know, hear about people who have these like really like, you know, eccentric, uh, sexual existences and attitudes. Um, but then I'm also like mystified, like foot fetish. Like, how do you become like into feet? Like what, it, what is it that makes somebody like, is it a childhood experience where it imprints itself on you? <laughs> like, is it just something you're born with? Like, I love feet. Like, yeah. there's now, there's a wiki feet. Have you seen this? Mm -mm, I haven't seen that. There's, like, a whole website devoted to, like, celebrity feet. So, like, if you're like, wow. <laughs> I, like, I think so-and-so uh, is pretty. Like, you go to wiki feet, and you can, like, find photos. Like, they've isolated photos of that celebrity's feet. The internet can be so kind <laughs> and generous. <laughs> I find that funny. Like, in a weird, you know, I'm also a little bit weirded out. But I know. mean, I think this sort of question of, um, you know, how these things come up or how these things are take shape interests me less, I think, because there's so many people who've been working in that realm 
Freud and all those, you know, the sort of sexual scientists and things. And um, I don't know, I, I, I think in this book and in general, I'm kind of more interested in like how it ends up shaping a life, you know, like if you grow up like, like Piggy, I, you know, he kind of missed out on the sexual revolution because he wanted a kind of sex that wasn't the kind of sex that was now kind of on everybody's radar as being, this is, this is what we're doing now. And, um, was there any Lord of the flies thinking when you named your character Piggy? It's the second time someone asked me that. Um, which is not to say that's too many times. I'm just surprised that it's only the second time and it never even occurred to me. Um, no, no, just, there are a lot of, there are a lot of guys that go by Piggy. Okay. Yeah. Didn't know that. (laughs) Or like warm was like another one, but I really liked Piggy. It's sort of a cuter word. Yeah. It's adorable. Worm is not, just kind of sits on the tongue weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. This is a different character, Worm. Yeah. So, uh, you never quit. It mutated. It took 15 years and you got it done. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I took detours, I suppose, to like fill in the blanks of, of your question. But those um, detours all feel of a piece, like in some way, like it feels like experiential research, maybe not totally, but it, you definitely working in magazines yeah. in, like for the AVN or whatever. And for that, uh, trade magazine, like those are not unrelated to the, your book. No, it's true. And, and they taught me a lot about the kind of story that I wanted to tell. And so when I finally ended up working in publicity at Granta Magazine, which is um, one of the UK's like most revered literary journals, kind of fiction on par with fiction and nonfiction on par with The New Yorker, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I've, like, I, I got like it, itchy or antsy uh, with the pornography stuff because I was like, I really love this, but there's like a type of story I want to tell and I don't know how to figure out how to tell it. And I think if I stay here, I'm not going to figure it out. I'll go down a different path. And so there was like an urgency that propelled me like back into kind of a more pointedly literary sphere. How did you get the gig at Granta? Like magic. Okay. I mean, I wanted to charm my, my husband. We were living together at the time and, um, I was doing some social media for Coco de Mer, who's like high end sex shop that used to have a branch here founded by the sort of activist daughter of the woman who founded the body shop. Okay. Um, and she, I went to the office one day and never went into the office. Um, cause all my work was online and they were like, Oh, we're having a book launch. You like books. And I was like, okay, I'll go. And it turned out it was Granta who my husband was like obsessed with. He was like collecting, old grantas and trying to fill up, you know, complete the collection. And, um, I had been recently told by a recruiter on the phone and he said that I would not get a job in the field that I wanted to work in. Maybe a tabloid newspaper, maybe, but having worked in porn, my prognosis was not great for him being able to place me anyway. <laughs> prognosis. I don't know. And maybe maybe he was just the wrong person to talk to. Maybe someone else would have had a different opinion. But I, I was just so devastated because I was like, no, I've moved my life back to the UK. I really want this. Like, I have to have this. And so I was standing there in a, a space that was familiar to me in the Coco de Mer shop in London and um, surrounded by, like, these editors who I now knew something about and were publishing just incredible stuff. And I was like, okay, I took my husband here on a date and it was just supposed to be casual, but I'm going to introduce myself to everybody and inhabit my role as the social media person for the shop. And like, and, um, if something, and and hope that something happens and eventually a job came up for a publicist and, um, you got it. Yeah. 
I mean, sometimes life is just, it's that crazy Fine. mixture of, it could have absolutely not have happened. Yeah. And there was kind of like a finishing school for my writing. I felt like I was in- encountering all these writers and stories and watching people publish their first story and go on to do great things, watching translators start their careers, which definitely gave me the confidence. That's my sort of day job. Is How many languages do you speak? Like three. Excellent. German, Swedish, and English. Okay. And then when I used to live in LA, my Spanish was pretty good, but don't speak it anymore. Can I ask you a question about like the, the sex world, uh, porn? Did you, in your time working in that sphere, meet other people who had as much of an intellectual bearing toward that world as you did? Was it like, were you an outlier or was it fairly common? Mm, oh no, I'm, I don't think I'm in out. Oh, that's such a hard question. I mean, I, there's definitely a big group of people who are interested in sort of porn and sex and culture in the way that I am, who are doing great work, you know, like, um, but like from the outside looking in, I mean, again, like I'm on the out, I'm on the way outside looking in, but I'm saying, I'm thinking like the kind of people that you're describing, I would imagine them as being like cultural anthropologist type people who mm. are like on the outside looking in and are interested in it, but you were like, you were of it. Yeah, I mean, so one of my absolute heroes is uh, Mark Kearns. He is the legal editor at AVN, and he has been doing sort of covering sort of law, censorship, pornography, freedom of speech, personal liberty stuff from an angle sort of through the porn, uh, porn industry lens for AVN forever. And I mean, he's doing, I think, some of the most important reporting on stuff that is important to us today, you know, like... Um, the whole free the nipple campaign relates directly to like a ton of reporting he's done on similar stuff about censorship around community standards and like how we're regulated on social media and things like that. Yeah. There's some um, weird laws. I mean, the free, like the, like being, not being able to take your shirt off. If, I mean, you can do it if you're a guy, but you can't, if you're a girl, that's never made much sense. Yeah. And then like, if you put like a photo of a butt or something on <laughs> Facebook, you get banned. Like what, like these, these rules are so silly. So silly. And really problematic. And it's one of those classic examples, kind of like uh, where, where, you know, you're trying to legislate in the idea around the idea that you're doing good for somebody. Like usually it's around like preventing child pornography and stuff, but the laws that are being made aren't actually, actually helping. I mean, it's a big and nuanced thing, but like the SESTA FOSTA laws were a lot of like online spaces where sex workers would go to essentially vet their clients and share information and essentially create a safety net for themselves. Right. Um, a lot of those spaces are gone and they're like, yeah, I mean, that was supposed to prevent human trafficking, but all it's doing is making, is putting our lives in danger. Mm. And so I don't know, like there are a lot of people, Lorelei Lee, for example, she's doing a lot of advocacy around um, sex workers' rights and things like there's definitely, Definitely people. Who's Laura Lee? Why is she ringing a bell for me? Huge censorship case, obscenity case that like got taken to the Supreme Court with, I want to say, maybe Max Hardcore and a movie called something about milk, I think. Okay. Yeah. So they were uh, like arguing um, sort of obscenity, not obscenity. Um, yeah. Do you think... What, and, what, and she's a writer, actually. Yeah, oh, she's she also is. a writer. Okay. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think she went you, to NYU or something. Could be Twitter. Yeah. You know, like, who knows? I could... Big could. on Twitter. She's great on Twitter. Okay. Follow Laura Lee on Twitter. All right. Yeah. Um, and, like, what about... Uh, I don't know. It's a kind of a whole different conversation. I don't even know if we should go down this road. But it's just, like, I wrestle with, like, the public health aspects of 
like easily watchable pornography and mm-hmm. porn addiction and the people involved in it, human trafficking, yeah. uh, the ways in which like women are like abused and mistreated often inside of that world. And, um, like what it just, what it does to people. Like when, when I was a kid, like maybe you stole somebody's dad's like playboy, yeah. <laughs> but now it's like, holy shit. Like if you just got this like infinite trove of videos that are like, there's no barrier to access. Anybody can watch them. Um, and it's like, I think it's creating maybe some very unhealthy perspectives and expectations around mm. like what sex is and, yeah. you know, what relationships, uh, between men and women in particular entail. And it's like, how do you put that genie back in the bottle? And I don't know. I think you don't, you, you double down on sex education and what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, like having, having conversations beyond the scripts that we're given, Yeah, you know, like, I think that's, that's a big sort of, what's like dichotomy, I suppose, in the book, you know, you have, and I think maybe why Echo is an actress as a character. Like I make, I made a lot of decisions that I don't remember why, but they just sort of ended up well, being 15 years. <laughs> I'm supposed to remember everything. So, so, you know, Echo's an actress and I think like what she also is dealing with in her personal life is a lot. She, she knows how to follow a good script. She knows how to follow the scripts that she's handed. And when she goes on dates, she knows those scripts yeah. with men, right. you know, and then, and then she's given this other space where she's allowed to like author her own script in a way and find her own way to actually what it is that she desires and how she wants to participate in an act of romance, an act of lust. And, you know, encouraging that kind of conversation, I think, is how you, um, you know, not put the genie back in the bottle, but learn how to, like, live with what exists in our society anyway. I think it's just quite exacerbated because of, you know, the wide availability of porn. Well, I think that the book that you've written is a fine contribution to um, deepening the understanding of this subject matter and the different kinds of um, relationships and approaches to it that people take and and just giving people a window through fiction into um, like a, like a deeper intellectual understanding, which is for the good. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Thank you. That's all I really wanted to do. I was going to say, so I was going to say, congratulations. I think that's what you did. And, uh, I, you know, I am especially, um, happy to hear, I love hearing stories of like long roads because I'm in the middle of one. I don't know if I'll ever get out of it, but like taking a long time to write a book, like it's always heartening to hear that there, it can happen. You can take 15 years and it can happen. And now here it is and it's out in the world and getting uh, a great reception. So I'm glad to catch you on your swing through, uh, you know, your home territory. Uh, I'm going to be looking at every time I'm in the grocery store now, I'm going to be like, I wonder if this is Saskia's dad's guava. I'm just going to assume it is. (laughs) Sure. And, uh, if it tastes good, it definitely is. There you go. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you and thank you for making time to come talk to me. Thank you for having me. Okay, there you go. That is Saskia Vogel. Her debut novel, Permission, is available now in North America from Coach House Books. Uh, So good to talk to her. You can find her on the web at saskiavogel.com. You can find her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Saskia Vogel. I think she's also on Instagram at uh, saskia.vogel if you're an Instagram person. The novel, one more time, is called Permission. 
Go get your copy immediately. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, letters at otherppl.com. If you want to transcribe an episode, email me. Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app. Search for it. Other PPL with Brad List, the app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. Next week on the program, I am very excited to announce that I will have uh, Elisa Gabbert back on the program for a second time. She was here in person uh, for the first time. In, the, uh, in her previous episode, we talked by phone, but this time she was in L.A. and uh, she came over and met me, sat down with me, and we had a great talk. So prepare yourselves for that. I've got some other great shows in the works that I'm excited to share with you. Thanks for listening, you guys. I will talk to you uh, soon. Soon.